0: Welcome to Prima's 2020 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the director of education at the Public Risk Management Association. On this Prima podcast, Tom Rickert will discuss fair use and you, understanding copyright risk in education. Tom is the vice president, head of marketing at the Argo Group. We will also be joined by Prima's education coordinator, Taequann Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Thank you for joining us today, Tom. Thank you for having me, Tequan. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. Not a problem. So first off, what is the Fair Use Doctrine, and how does it apply to educational
0: institutions?
1: Well, copyright law has several features that uh, permit quotations from copyrighted works without permission or payment under certain conditions. For libraries, educational institutions, and the public, the Fair Use Doctrine is the most important limitation on the rights of a copyright owner. It's the safety valve of U.S. copyright law. Where it applies, fair use is a right, not just a privilege. In fact, as the Supreme Court has pointed out, fair use keeps copyright from violating the First Amendment. With the Internet and other technologies, a clear understanding of fair use is more important today than ever before. The cultural value of copying is so well established that it's written into the social bargain at the heart of copyright law. As a society, we give limited property rights to creators to reward them for producing culture, and at the same time, we give other creators, in some circumstances, the use to use that same copyrighted material without permission or payment. But copyright law doesn't exactly specify how to apply fair use. Rather than following a specific formula, the legal system determines whether an unlicensed use of a copyrighted material is fair according to a rule of reason. This means that it takes all the facts and circumstances into account to decide if an unlicensed use of copyrighted material generates social or cultural benefits that are greater Than the cost it imposes on the copyright owner. Fair use is flexible, though. It's not uncertain or it's not unreliable, or for any particular field of creative activity, the legal system considers expectations and practice in assessing what is fair within the field. And the use of copyrighted materials for a public purpose may be considered fair use and not a copyright violation. And among those settings where the use may be considered fair use is in educational institutions, which is serving the public purpose of instructing students. In weighing the balance at the heart of the fair use analysis, judges usually refer to four types of considerations that are mentioned in the law to determine whether a particular use by a school is fair use. And the four factors that should be considered are, one is, how is the work being used? You want to consider, is it being used to teach students or is it being used to entertain? What kind of work is being used? So you consider, is it factual or informational or is it creative? Because creative works might receive greater protections. And three of how much of the work is being used. So consider how much of the work is being copied and how much of its substance. And fourth, the economic impact on the owner. So you want to consider, is the creator of the work losing out on any profits or the ability to publish or present the work in his or her own way? Those are the basic things when you want to consider fair use doctrine, what it is and how it applies to educational institutions. Are there any guidelines to help an educator determine if they are complying with the fair use limitations? Yes, there are. You know, In addition uh, to some things we'll talk about in a second, there there's some federal guidelines. The federal guidelines on fair use prohibit teachers from copying materials to substitute for the purchase of individual materials, prohibits them from copying consumables, i.e. workbooks, It prohibits uh, charging students more than the cost of a copy or copying without the notice of copyright and excessive copying, for example, copying whole books. This still leaves a lot of room for interpretation, especially since the law is clear that these aren't the only necessary considerations. In reviewing the history of fair use litigation, we find judges return again and again to two key questions. One, did the unlicensed use transform the material taken from the copyrighted work by using it for a different purpose other than that of the original? Or did it just repeat the work for the same intent and value as the original? Second, was the material appropriate in kind and amount, considering the nature of the work copyrighted and the use? Both questions touch on, among other things, the question of whether the use will cause excessive economic harm to the copyright owner. If the answer to those two questions is is yes, that it did transform it and it was appropriate in kind and amount, a court is likely to find fair use. Because that's true, such a use is unlikely to be challenged in the first place. But because applying the fair use factors is so difficult, a group of educators, authors, and publishers authorized by Congress produced some guidelines on reproducing books and periodicals. Published in 1976 as a supplement to the actual Copyright Act, it's called the Agreement on Guidelines for Classroom Copying and Not-for-Profit Educational Institution with respect to books and periodicals. It states some minimum standards permissible for copying. In addition, over the years in 1979, 1999, additional Standards were were established for off-air recording of broadcast programming, digital images, educational multimedia, and distance learning. And even though they're not incorporated into the Copyright Act, they provide school districts with a minimum standard of what constitutes fair use. Districts should be reasonably safe from copyright violations if they follow the guidelines. And the guidelines, like the legal standard that we described earlier, established a four-part test for fair use in schools. When copies are made, the copied portions must be 1 brief, 2 spontaneous, 3 limited and cumulative effect, and 4 affixed with a copyright notice acknowledging proper authorship. The guideline describes brevity as, quote, a complete article, story or essay of less than 2500 words or a complete poem of less than 250 words or an excerpt from any prose work of not more than 1,000 words or 10% of the work. Spontaneity means that the teacher's decision to use the work and the actual use must be so close in time that seeking the author's permission to use the work is impractical. The cumulative effect limitation means that a teacher can take multiple copies of any given work, but only for one class in the school. Now, always remember that fair use never justifies unauthorized copying of any parts of consumable workbooks. So those are some basic guidelines that schools can follow to determine whether they're complying with fair use limitations.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this Prima podcast. I would like to take a moment to invite you to Prima's 2020 annual conference, June 14th through 17th in Nashville, Tennessee. Here are some words from Prima's Meetings Director, Monique Gilliam, regarding Prima's 2020 annual conference.
1: Prima's annual conference will be held in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee, June 14th through the 17th. It'll be at the Gaylord Resort and Conference Center. The room rates are 205 plus resort fees, and our cutoff date is May 17th. So book now, spaces are going up fast. Eligible attendees are those who work in the public sector, such as state government, local communities, special districts, intergovernmental pools, or a municipality.
0: And if risk management is a part of your daily routine, you should be at Prima's annual conference. Our annual conference is a leading event for public risk management professionals
1: and provides a unique opportunity for attendees to connect with and learn from peers and thought leaders from inside the industry.
0: To learn more about Prima's 2020 annual conference, visit primacentral.org.
1: What impact is technology having on fair use and copyright? Well, when you consider the extent of access to materials via the web, technology has a significant impact on the copyright risk management. The main piece of legislation meant to address infringement of online or digital copyright is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. The first part of the legislation prohibits the circumvention of technologies that have been installed to prevent online infringement. For example, copyright holders often install programs that require computer users to enter passwords in order to access certain files or applications. Further, copyright holders may encrypt data or files to prohibit access by outsiders. DMCA prohibits circumvention of those technological protection measures. Now, there's another section that distinguishes between technological measures that restrict access to copyrighted works and those that restrict copying. This categorization is designed to ensure continuation of fair use. In some situations, copying works is still considered fair use, while that may be deemed unfair. Another part of the DMCA aims to help educational institutions avoid liability if they act responsibly. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act targets the manufacture, distribution, and use of computer programs designed to circumvent or decrypt protection devices. Even so, there are four prominent exceptions applicable in education settings. In other words, no liability would attach under the DMCA if, in good faith, users, as we talked about below, access materials that would otherwise be inaccessible under law. First, the law allows circumvention by nonprofit libraries and archives and educational institutions where the sole purpose of the circumvention is to obtain authorized access. Now, this exception applies only when libraries are open to the public, so usually then it would most likely apply in a higher education setting than a K-12 setting. The law permits encryption research. It also allows for the testing of technological devices that are designed to prevent access by minors to certain Internet material. This exception may be particularly applicable in K-12 settings where school officials are trying out filtering software at the school. And finally, the law permits uh, the testing of security of computer systems or networks. So where a school is the internet service provider, the second piece of legislation in the DMCA is the Online Copyright Infringement Liability Limitation Act, which protects internet service providers against infringement liability for acts of their subscribers. So under this part of the law, computer users who store or transmit material unlawfully obtained from the Internet, face liability for infringement, but as long as the ISP has no role in the infringing conduct, and once they discover it, it acts to remove the content, disable access to it. These limitations apply when the ISPs, the Internet service providers, have established and implemented policy such as a school acceptable use policy that provides for the termination of accounts, subscriptions, and computer use privileges of repeat violators. So school leaders should pay attention to the DMCA because they're technologically savvy students who may take advantage of their schools as an Internet service provider. Unauthorized copying and downloading of materials such as music and movies is rampant among students. And only those ISPs that actively enforce policies that promote compliance can take advantage of DMCA's limitations on policies. Another interesting development in copyright law is 3D printing. It's been called the next disruptive technology to conflict with copyright law. This technology allows people to reproduce any 3D object, and although it's now generally the province of industry and hobbyists, it's now becoming more and more common in higher education settings and in high school STEM classes. So the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office recently issued a patent for a 3D digital rights management method that's similar to those used by Apple and Barnes & Noble, which would prevent 3D printers from using pirated CAD files. So the ability to make objects using a CAD file that could violate copyright or patent is a significant emerging risk. However, recent court cases involving fair use have yielded decisions that uphold transformative uses as legal, such as recreating even copyrighted protective materials in new formats for access by the visually impaired. So from things like text-to-speech technology. And given the legal directive for educational institutions to provide reasonable accommodations for visually impaired students, it would seem that 3D printing tactile learning objects could be one way to fill this. So being able to take a work and create it using a 3D printer and then letting visually impaired people use that, that tactile learning tool could transform the object up to, to make it a, a fair use. There's also a lot of new digital platforms that seek to help teachers obtain lesson plans that are, whether they're copyrighted they're copyright or not, it allows them to, to legally access those and use them. Some are paid, like Amazon Ignite and Teachers Pay Teachers, and others are free, like Share My Lesson. So there's a lot of issues out there, like 3D printing, that are going to affect copyright, and there are also technological tools that will help teachers find lessons plans and other things that will help them comply with copyright and fair use. Are there legal consequences for the institution when staff violates fair use doctrine? Absolutely, there are. The legal penalties for copyright infringement can be the infringer pays the actual dollar amount of the damages and the profits. The law provides for a range of from $200 to $50,000 for each work infringed. The infringer would pay for all attorney fees and court costs. The court can issue an injunction to stop the infringing acts, and the court can impound the illegal works. And in extreme cases, the infringer could also go to jail. In a recent highly publicized case, the Houston, Texas uh, Independent School District settled for $7.8 million in October of 2019 after an earlier jury award of $9 million. That award found 36 individual instances of copyright violation and assessed awards between $750 and $150,000 per violation. In addition, the jury found that the district had violated the Digital Millennium Copyright Act by removing some copyright management information, and for 17 violations assessed awards between $12,500 and $25,000 for each of 256 instances. So as that case pointed out, while they may not be frequent, if proper guidelines aren't followed, then the financial penalties and the results can be rather onerous. What are some risk management steps an institution can take to avoid copyright violations? Well, schools and educators can follow some fairly straightforward practical tips to avoid running afoul of copyright law. One is create a clear and concise copyright policy. And make sure it's distributed to both teachers and students, and that includes both traditional print and digital media. First examples of model policies available, such as one created by Media Education Labs Copyright Education Initiative. Also, using a checklist to help teachers determine if a specific use qualifies as fair use can be really handy. The University of California Santa Barbara Library has a Creative Commons Attribution License checklist that is a good example. Speaking of that, providing guidance to students and teachers on how to obtain compliant materials online, Creative Commons has over 300 million images and other search tools that can help teachers and students access materials that show what type of use is permitted. The Creative Commons licenses allows authors to publicly license their copyrighted works subject to certain conditions, and they can be things from very broad, as in just attribution Telling somebody that they're using someone else's work to more restrictive, which are you can only use it for non commercial, non derivative use. So, making sure that students and teachers understand how to obtain those materials from Creative Commons it can be a, a good tool. You also understand connected with that, want to understand your own institution's ownership rights for works that you create. And do you want a default policy that permits sharing, or is there content that you want to lock down? And here again, using the Creative Commons licenses and copywriting your works under Creative Commons actually uh, can help uh, with that process. Really importantly, you want to avoid copying any content specifically created for the education market. Substantial copying of textbooks, study guides, education software, posters, or other educational products is probably not fair use. And as the Houston case showed, this is a likely place to expose the school and officials to legal jeopardy. So there's a lot of resources out there on the web on fair use and copyright. I would recommend one called the Digital Citizenship Resource Project devoted to helping teachers understand copyright and fair use. And it's part of the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard University. You can find that at dcrp.berkman.harvard.edu slash tool slash fair hyphen use hyphen teachers. And I'm sure that we can make that site available to people can find that site and they'll, they'll find it very useful.
0: We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.